Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Stephanie Strathy. She's an Associate Dean of Global Health Sciences and Harold Simon Professor in the Department of Medicine at University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. Uh, she's also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins and Simon Fraser Universities. She co-directs UCSD's uh, new center for innovative phage applications and therapeutics called IPATH. So we're going to get into her work. And uh, Stephanie, thanks for coming. Thanks very much. Yeah, offline, um, before we begin, you mentioned that there's a book that, uh, I guess, has it come out or is it about to come out? No, it's it's come out. It's called The Perfect Predator, A Scientist's Race to Save Her Husband from a Deadly Superbug. But if that's too long, just say The Perfect Predator. Okay, in in the book, what's the uh, the superbug, by the way? It's Acinetobacter bomanii. Oh, what what condition does it lead to? Uh, Death. (laughs) Okay, I don't know if it had a name. Uh, well, it, I mean, like, like any bacterial infection, it can cause any number of things. So that's mm-hmm. like that. The book is actually like how um, the, it's the story of how this whole center began. So it's kind of like for more information on our story, people can check out the perfect predator or something like that would be great to say. All right, no problem. Well, tell me in the meantime, what, what kind of work are you doing at uh, UCSD? Well, I'm an AIDS researcher by day, but this um, situation with my husband and how I came up with the idea to save him with, from his superbug infection with, with a virus um, has led to the formation of this new center. Oh, so you actually uh, did phage therapy on him and, and you were yeah. able to save him? Wow. Yeah. Well, if you would, um, tell me about that briefly. That's, that's like super interesting. What, if, you can, if you don't mind recounting a little of it, what, what happened? Sure. What was the backstory? So uh, my husband uh, was actually the first patient in our phage therapy center uh, just by accident. My my husband and I were on vacation um, in Egypt in 2015 over American Thanksgiving, and uh, he got very sick. And uh, turns out he had a superbug infection that was living inside an abscess in his abdomen. And um, he acquired it there somehow. We'll never really know. Um, and he was like very, very sick. So we luckily we had medevac insurance and he was first sent to Germany where they diagnosed him with the superbug infection. And they told us it was the worst superbug on the planet. Its name is Acinetobacter bomanii, but the nickname for it is Arachobacter because so many veterans come back from the Middle East with this infection. And um, they stabilized him and they got him sent back here to San Diego where we live and work. And so now it was our colleagues who were actually caring for him. And they found that it was actually resistant to all antibiotics and there was nothing that they could do. Um, And long story short, um, when they basically said um, he's not going to make it, um, I asked him if he wanted to live. And even though he was in a coma, he was able to squeeze my hand and indicate that he wanted to live. So, I mean, even though I'm not a medical doctor, I am a researcher. I know how to research. So I went home and I hit the internet and I used PubMed 
to find, uh, you know, an alternative treatment to try to save them. And I found something called phage therapy, which is uh, based on bacteriophage, which are viruses that have naturally evolved to attack bacteria. I proposed it as a potential solution. And to my delight, the doctors that were treating my husband said, well, gee, you know, that would be a first in the U.S. But if you can find phages that can match um, Tom's bacterial infection, we'll get permission from the FDA to try it on a compassionate basis. So there was a long uh, phage hunt. Well, I say long. It only took three weeks, but it was the longest three weeks of our lives, let me tell you. And um, uh, Texas A&M University researchers, as well as the U.S. Navy and uh, researchers from all over the world um, donated phage or at least offered phage to help. And we found phage that matched. We injected them into him a billion viruses per dose. That's like a billion, like 10 to the nine PFU per mil. And even though we weren't sure if it was going to, you know, kill him or cure him, he woke up from a deep coma. Like he was literally within hours of dying, I was told, and uh, lifted his head off the pillow and kissed his daughter's hand. And the the rest is history, as they say, medical history, literally. Yeah, that's amazing. I've heard about phage therapy, but anyone that I talk to always says, oh, that's in Russia. And it, it... well, what are actually, some of the dynamics of phage therapy? Is it is it really that case, or is it, when is it used, and well, how rare is it? They're right. Um, so basically, bacteriophage were first discovered by a French Canadian microbiologist called Felix Deherel. And your podcast is called Finding Genius, and this guy really was a genius, but he was self taught. He had no formal education past high school. And, um, you know, he was somewhat of an egotist. So he ticked off a lot of Nobel laureates who really poo-pooed his finding. But he used phage, uh, even though he couldn't even see them at the time, the electron microscope wasn't even developed yet. But he deduced that whatever this um, uh, was that could pass through a Pasteur filter must be smaller than bacteria. And if since it could kill bacteria, that it, it must be a parasite of bacteria. So he deduced that it was a virus. He was right. He used um, this phage preparation to cure children who were dying of dysentery in Paris in 1919 and then became quite famous. I mean, um, he was the inspiration for the Pulitzer Prize winning book Aerosmith that was published in 1925. And then it was the Russians. Um, well, at the time, um, the Republic of Georgia hadn't yet uh you know, been formed as such as it was part of Russia. And uh, Felix de Harel and uh, uh, colleagues there um, at the what is now known as the Ilyava Phage Therapy Center in Tbilisi formed the first um, phage therapy center in the world. So um, that um, gave it the reputation of being a Russian medicine. And of course, we were up against World War II at the time uh, that you know, penicillin was just being discovered and brought to, to the market. And this phage um, was thought to be, you know, um, the enemy's approach to dealing with bacterial infections. So it really was a geopolitical bias that hung over phage therapy for decades. It, and um, it's only recently that phage therapy has emerged from under that cloud as a result of my husband's case and several other highly publicized cases um, in the last several years. Yeah, that's amazing that you rallied and were able to do that. How did you, uh, is it just because, I mean, is it because you're a researcher and at that time you were and so you knew other researchers? Like, how did you even know who to contact to find phage? And how did you I research this? I didn't. I mean, I, I believe that sometimes when your back is up against the wall and you've got no solutions left, 
that that's where true genius comes from. I mean, I don't consider myself a genius, but it was it was an insight that I developed at that moment out of pure desperation. I mean, my husband was dying. We literally signed the consent form for kidney dialysis the day that he got phage therapy. I mean, there was no hope. Um, one of the doctors um, described it as a Hail Mary pass in the last minute of the game where the quarterback is blindfolded and is throwing the ball 100 yards down the field and somebody, believe it or not, caught it. So uh, we even wrote a book about our story called The Perfect Predator because, you know, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. And if I was blindsided by the, you know, the global superbug crisis that has crept up on us, then the average person isn't aware of it either. And of course, this is a hundred year old forgotten cure that's been there right under our noses, or as I say, our butts right along. And why, why do I say our butt? Well, um, turns out that when you're looking for phage, because you have to find the perfect predator, as, as it were, like the, the phage are specific for different kinds of bacteria. So it isn't like any phage will attack any kind of bacteria. It has to be the kind that, you know, it, it attaches through a receptor. So it has to find the receptor that it, that it matches to on the bacterial um, cell surface. And so the best place to find phages is actually in sewage. So some of my husband's phage was sourced from like barnyard waste and, you know, sewage from water treatment facilities and the like. And now that he la- he lived and we laugh about it, I can tell him that he's literally full of shit. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Interesting. So what have you learned about phage dynamics from, uh, from what happened with them? Like I've, I've heard that, you know, I thought, it was one phage, one bacteria, but uh, from what a few researchers told me, there can be like a thousand different phages that, you know, prey upon and interact with a given bacteria. But do you know any more in that regard? Well, it really depends. I mean, um, we know that there's 10 million trillion trillion phages that are estimated to be on the planet, right? That's like, there's more like phages um, on the planet than any other organism. They're the oldest and most populous. So we really don't know a lot about phages, um, but we do know that some bacteria have, have lots of different phages that you can find that will attack it. They all attach to a receptor, but it, it could be a different receptor. So when you're trying to use phage therapeutically to treat somebody's bacterial infection, Ideally, you want more than one phage because the bacteria can ju- develop resistance to that phage very quickly because they have their CRISPRs, which are essentially part of the bacterial's own, own immune system. The phage have their anti-CRISPRs, so they're essentially dueling it out with different you know, weaponry at an, an invisible scale that we don't understand. So, um, you know, phage, um, there are some phage that... Um, uh, like for the phage that attack MRSA, for example, it's thought that maybe 20 to 30 different types of phage will cover the majority of circulating MRSA isolates around the world, which is great because that maybe means that you, you only need a fixed cocktail to treat MRSA, that you don't have to personalize every time. But for the bacterial infection my husband had, Acinetobacter bomanii, it's very specific. Um, so you know, you have to find phage that not only match the genus and the species, but that specific isolate. So Tom's uh, Acinetobacter bomanii. So in that case, you either need to have a, a phage library with probably hundreds of phages that will attack that organism so that you will find several that will match in a cocktail, or you could use genetic engineering to modify the host tropism for that phage so that it, it will attack a broader range of bacteria. 
And um, the first genetically modified phage cocktail to treat a bacterial infection was done successfully. Um, it was reported on in May of, of 2019 in Nature Medicine. Um, my colleague, Chip Schooley, who's the infectious disease physician who presided over my husband's case, was involved in that. And those phage um, that were used to treat this girl in the UK um, were sourced from the C-phages program, which is a educational program that was developed at the University of Pittsburgh. And I mention this because several of your listeners might be interested in learning more about phage and getting, you know, into the lab. And the C-phages program has over 10,000 phages in a phage library, and they never even dreamed that it had therapeutic potential. But a phage that was sourced from a rotting eggplant in South Africa was the most potent phage that um, helped um, kill this this girl's superbug infection. And her infection was actually a cousin to tuberculosis. It's called Mycobacterium obsessus. And since TB is the biggest bacterial killer, uh, her case suggests that we might be able to use phage therapy to treat TB someday. Yeah, it makes sense. A phage cocktail is typically used, so not just one type of phage, but dozens or sometimes hundreds of different ones are used? Well, likely not dozens or hundreds, but it's um, because you don't want to have a phage competing with an, uh, each other. Um, you want to have phage that are going to um, like play well in the sandbox with one another. So we may need to use machine learning techniques to select the different kinds of phage that would go well together. So, you know, imagine that, you know, that you have burglars trying to break into a house, right? If you have 20 burglars that are all trying to get through the same door, they're, they're not going to be able to all get through at the same time, right? But if one goes through a window and one goes through a door, they have a better chance of getting in and stealing the merchandise, right? So that's kind of what, what we want is, uh, you know, we want to burgle our way into the human body and kill only those bacteria that are pathogenic. And that's the beauty of phage therapy because those phage only attack the bacteria that they match to. They don't um, harm any of the friendly bacteria in the microbiome. Um, and when they've done their job and they've killed that bacterial pathogen, they are filtered out by the liver and the spleen primarily. And so they, um, they're, they're basically self-limiting. So compare that to an antibiotic that has a real scorched earth approach to things and kills, you know, not just the bacteria that is causing the problem, but they could kill a lot of other bacteria as well. And we know that that's not a good thing these days. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how can you know that the phage won't uh, kill other bacteria that may be beneficial to us? Well, they need to have the receptor, right, that, that, that they, they match to. So if other bacteria don't have that receptor, then they can't enter. So you can actually see, you know, by doing what's called the plaque assay in a Petri dish, if you have different kinds of bacterial cultures that you streak on plates and then you add um, the phage suspension, you'll be able to incubate it for 24 to 48 hours and see plaques or essentially holes in the jello-like agar that we use to, you know, to grow these bacterial cell cultures. So even though you can't see the phage with your naked eye, you can see where they've gobbled up the bacterial culture. So you make sure that the phage that you want to use in the cocktail is killing the bacteria that you want to, uh, to kill and not others. Um, when you, okay, so you find a phage or you find, I guess, several that seem to yep, do the job several. and then you make isolates in them, but, um, how do you make isolates in them? How do you uh, concentrate them? 
Yeah, well, um, it's it's really called, um, you know, uh, like a purification step. And um, you also grow up the phage in, uh, by adding more bacterial suspension. So as long as there's bacteria, you know, in a, in a flask or on a, you know, a, a pet, in a Petri dish, then the phage will, will multiply. So you allow that process to occur naturally. And then you want to um, either use um, like cesium chloride centrifugation or um, other kinds of purification steps to, to remove the bacterial debris, like essentially the bacterial cell um, wall and the other um, debris that have, have occurred when the bacteria die. And that is essentially called endotoxin. Um, in especially in gram negative bacteria, they, um, the lipopolysaccharide layer of the, of the gram negative uh, bacteria can be a toxin. So you don't want to use crude phage lysate that uh, for a gram negative bacteria that has that a lot of that debris in it because it could elicit a septic shock. Um, we haven't seen that because we have purified the, the phage before we use it, but that's the, that's the most difficult step. And even so, I mean, if even if you have purified phage when it's in the, you know someone's body, and if they have a large infection of a certain bacteria, do you have to slowly step up the phage, or um, you know what happens to the endotoxin produced by the the bacteria and the person that are being killed? How do they filter it effectively? Well, those are two different things. So basically, what's um, unusual about phage is that the drug is alive, right? So unlike antibiotics, where you're just like, you know, injecting a drug in, in there, the phage are going to multiply as long as there's bacteria that, that they match to. So um, you, you know, you keep, you know, administering phage. At this point, we don't even know enough about dosing. Um, but we do know that it's better to overdose rather than underdose because if you don't have enough phage that you inject into the body, the, the body is going to see it as an invader and will remove it like through like the liver and the spleen or phagocytosis or mag- macrophages, et cetera. Um, we still don't know enough about that process, but um, the endotoxin that is produced in a bacterial infection, even in the absence of phage therapy, um, you know, like it's not something that we see has been a problem. So, and because our bodies have phage in them already, it's estimated that there's 30 billion phages that move in and out of our tissues every single day. It's just that we haven't really appreciated it because when we've talked about the microbiome, we've been focused on the bacteria, but really the phage are there as gatekeepers. They're, they're keeping the bacterial cell turnover in play. Um, so essentially we're just um, helping out our own body's immune system and, and introducing phage that will remove or groom the microbiome to take out the phage, uh, the bacteria rather that are causing the health problem. So um, you expose the phage to, more of the bacteria that it kills and that's enough to culture like what what tighter of a, a phage how much phage you, your goal is to put in like 10 to the 9th or 10 to the 12th or what's what's a yeah we've goal? used at least 10 to the 9 um so that's a billion phages per dose but we need to do pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic studies to try to determine okay if we administer this much phage we know the dose that's going in but we don't know that the the dose that the patient is actually receiving because the phage are multiplying so there's different ways that we can tag um the the phage that are administered 
with fluorescein or other markers to see where the phage go. But we've also got to figure out a way to tag those progeny phage, right? Because otherwise the signal will decay. So that's the kind of translational bench work that needs to get done now to inform clinical trials, because that's the next step is phage therapy needs to undergo rigorous clinical trials and we need to treat it like a living antibiotic so that we can convince regulatory agencies like the FDA that phage is worth uh, licensing alongside antibiotics. When you isolate the phage or when you, well, when you, I guess, culture it and grow it, you expose it to bacteria. Have you ever thought about passaging it uh, through a person that's sick and then culturing it? Or is that, uh, I mean, is there anything to be gained from that? Or is that just dangerous to do that? Well, I mean, when you're, when the best, um, or, or through an animal, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the animal, we haven't been required to do animal studies for the, by the FDA. They just approved the first NIH funded phage therapy trial that we're actually going to be launching at our phage therapy center in collaboration with the antibiotic resistance leadership group um, in 2021. So um, it's really not necessary to do that. But what we really need is a giant phage library that will map on to, you know, an ever expanding library of multidrug resistant bacterial organisms because then we don't have to go to environmental sources every time to get phage we can just go to the phage library and see um you know and use it to screen against the bacterial isolates that come from patients can you talk about what's involved in this clinical trial that's coming or is it uh you you have to keep it hush hush until you run it well, um, what I do know, I'm, I'm not, you know, the principal investigator of this study. It's Dr. Chip Schooley in combination with the Antibiotic Resistance Leadership Group, which is a network of research institutes that involve uh, UCSF and Duke. Um, and uh, they have been um, studying small molecules, mostly new antibiotics for decades. But, you know, obviously there's not a lot of antibiotics in the pipeline. That's why we're in the superbug crisis that we are in. And um, when Dr. Schooley proposed to them that they should think about a phage therapy, they, they were excited. And so was the NIH. Um, and that's taken some time to get the NIH to realize that this um, alternative to antibiotics has promise. So the trial is going to be a phase one slash phase two trial um, with, a, you know, a relatively small number of patients to begin with. Um, and it's going to focus on pseudomonas infections, uh, pseudomonas aeruginosa in particular, among cystic fibrosis patients. Um, it's going to focus on patients that don't um, require antibiotics at the time so that they have a, a chronic infection that isn't acute because um, we want to see how phage um, are, are able to act in the absence of antibiotics. I should say, though, that we have found, um, as several other researchers have, that phage can be synergistic with antibiotics as well. We saw this in my husband's case. So in a sense, what's happening is if you use some phage and some antibiotics um, at the same time, the bacteria are faced with a genetic decision, if you will. They're, they don't have brains, but, you know, the, the, the phage uh, or the bacteria that, that, that die are, are gone. But those that persist are those that tend to be um, resistant to the phage and are resensitized to the, to the antibiotic that they were previously resistant to. So in my husband's case, the bacteria uh, dropped its capsule, which is um, a virulence factor that was a, a slimy layer. And that's where the, the um, receptor for the phage was. So the phage didn't work anymore, 
but that it had the selective pressure on the bacteria to select for that mutant. And, and that made it susceptible to an antibiotic because it didn't have that capsule um, and that slimy layer, which um, are difficult for some antibiotics to penetrate. So that's the kind of thing that we need to study more so that we can capitalize and optimize um, phage therapy um, in the presence of antibiotics. We don't think it's ever going to replace it. Well, that's interesting. So antibiotics can push a bacteria in a direction of resistance, but a phage can then actually pressure it back so that it would be resensitized to antibiotics. Yes, that's exactly huh. right. And and we found this opportunistically in my husband's case, but we've seen it other times. In fact, um, um, Dwayne Roach, who's a phage researcher at San Diego State University, he's also found the opposite. He's found that in some cases, phage and antibiotics can um, compete against one another. And so you don't want that. So we, we need to study the interaction between phage uh, bacteria and the human immune system in vivo. And um, this work is is um, going to really be um, a focus in you know, over the next several years. Huh. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't think much about the dynamics between uh, phage and antibiotics. Hmm. Do you, is it well understood how the current antibiotics affect various bacteria? Like, is there, it seems like there would be a library for each antibiotic on which bacteria it would affect and how. And then if you had a library of the phage that affect the bacteria and how, you could probably expedite this and do a pairing. Oh, this phage seems to cause the upregulation of this receptor, but this antibiotic uses it and vice versa. Like, yeah, that's combine these two libraries. Yeah, we definitely need, we need um, a giant, you know, superbug library. We need a giant phage library. We need to, you know, test it against a whole range of, antibiotics, those that are under use and those that have been, you know, on the shelf, because we may be able to resuscitate an antibiotic that hasn't been able to work for a while by, you know, capitalizing upon this phage um, antibiotic synergy. Um, And that's going to require also some bioinformatics and some, you know, machine learning like approaches that have yet to be, you know, parsed out. Um, So I think it's a real exciting area for biotechnology in the future. Yeah. And um, when is your book coming out, The Perfect Predator, or where can it be found? Um, our book actually was published. Um, the paperback oh. version just came out in November 2020. Um, it's available on Amazon and all the other places where you can buy books. Um, you can go to our website, theperfectpredator.com, where there's um, a lot of literature as well as uh, the places where you can uh, purchase it. It's also been translated into Russian, Chinese, and Japanese. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I see it right here. I'm going to order it right now. Excellent. All right. Uh, do you want to spend a few minutes talking about AIDS or is that, uh, I mean, you think we've covered enough for this call? It's up I, to you. I think we've covered enough, but I, I think your listeners would want to know too that, you know, the superbug crisis is a pandemic. It's been simmering along. It hasn't burst on the scene like COVID, but it is getting worse under COVID because COVID survivors that have been in the hospital and on ventilators are um, susceptible to superbug infections. We don't exactly know what percentage, but even if it's only five to 10% of them um, that acquire superbug infections, then, you know, then, then they, they end up succumbing to that. So um, we've actually been involved in okay. it of the same superbug that was attacking my husband among COVID patients in um, hospitals in rural Texas. So I think it has tremendous applications um, and, 
Um, I think that it's important for people to, you know, stay ahead of uh, pandemics like this. And, you know, people might be listening and saying, well, what can I do? Well, I mean, we do have our purchasing power when we go to the supermarket and we buy food. And if you do eat meat, you should try to buy antibiotic-free meat because 70% of the antibiotics that get used that are really driving the superbug crisis are used in agriculture. And this is primarily, you know, among, you know, pigs and cattle and chicken, and it's to make them grow fatter faster. Um, And unfortunately, you know, the agribusiness has an incredible lobby Um, Even um, citrus antibiotics are sprayed on citrus, even though they really don't even, you know, cure the problem they're uh, they're trying to to cure. So and this is what is driving um, superbugs, because if you're using the same antibiotics and, you know, poultry or or, citrus that that are being used in humans, then that's where antibiotics lose their potency because, the spread of multi-drug resistance through plasmids and the exchange of bacteria through, you know, horizontal gene transmission um, is, is really, you know, what is spreading these, um, these resistance genes around the world very quickly. And that's really interesting. Um, if you wash fruit or vegetables, would that do much for you or is the antibiotics kind of in the skin and in the uh, vegetable or the fruit? Well, it, it's really a bigger problem than that. I mean, the people who are getting exposed um, first are the handlers. So, you know, people who work on a farm or, you know, in the orchards and, you know, they're picking the fruit or handling the meat, that kind of thing. And so they're acquiring bacterial infections that are more likely to be resistant. And then that gets spread through their contacts as well. So just to give you an example of how quickly antibiotic resistance genes can spread. In 2015, actually the same month that my husband fell ill from his superbug infection, the Lancet published a paper that was um, by Chinese researchers who had discovered the MCR1 gene, which confers resistance to colistin. Colistin is the last resort antibiotic that was developed in World War II. It's highly toxic, but, you know, it's kind of the one of the last... Uh, antibiotics that that, that doctors have for gram-negative infections like the kind my husband had. And when this paper was published, infectious disease physicians were alarmed because they're saying, oh my God, if we lose colistin, what do we have left in our arsenal to treat patients? Well, the next thing that people did was look in, in their own countries and use surveillance to see how if this gene, this MCR1 gene was in their country. Well, it turns out it was already in 30 countries it's because we're not, we haven't had antimicrobial resistance surveillance, right? And so it, it was spreading without us even knowing. And, and in fact, my husband's bacterial isolate had that, that gene. And the doctors were initially shocked. But when the paper came out saying, hey, look, this is a lot more widespread than we thought. I mean, that's, that's why we're really up against the, you know, the wall as a society, as a culture. And it isn't just one country we're talking about. This is like a worldwide problem. By the year 2050, one person every three seconds, that's 10 million people per year, is going to be dying from a superbug infection. I guess we better get on phage therapy and figure it out quick. Yeah. Well, we certainly <laughs> need more than just antibiotics. The antibiotic um, pipeline is dry, dried up, and we need push and pull incentives to revive it. But we do need alternatives. And it's largely thought now that phage therapy is the most promising alternative to antibiotics out there. And so that's why I'm here talking about it. Well, even the antibiotic pipelines 
I mean, from what I understand, they've dried up because the money has gotten to be so high to get an antibiotic through. And the treatment would be maybe, let's say, 10 days that maybe it's financially not worth it for the pharma companies to develop new ones. But what, what's your insight there? Well, that's true. And also with the spread of multidrug resistance, the, the shelf life for them it hasn't been as long either. So so we definitely need like a new a way to reimburse pharmas and to incentivize pharmas to work on antibiotics. But, but phage therapy does offer some hope, too, that there's collaborations with pharmas that could exist because, you know, if we can use phage to revive an antibiotic that's been on the shelf because of resistance, that's still a game changer for the field. It also sounds like, and I know this is a policy issue, but antibiotics could be on a, um, you know, certain drugs, it's very difficult to get them. They're on certain schedules. Perhaps antibiotics need to be scheduled so that farmers and stuff can't use them unless it's a, you know, like it's let's say a dire need. And that would reduce their prevalence everywhere and they'd make it more effective. Yeah, what you're talking about is essentially antibiotic stewardship and infectious disease pharmacists now work in this area. And so it's it's a very important way of, of you know, um, of reducing unnecessary use of antibiotics. But that's actually a disincentive for pharmas as well, because they're saying, like, why should we spend all this money developing something that isn't even going to be used except in a last resort? So it's kind of, um, you know, an, an oxymoron, if you will. But there are two different acts, um, the Pasteur Act is one of them that is um, before Congress right now that would, you know, really improve the way that antibiotics are being used and the surveillance as well as the stewardship and alternatives. And so I'm hopeful that um, under new federal leadership that we'll, we'll see more attention given to this matter. Yeah, this is really interesting. It's a very delicate balance. Hmm. A lot of countervailing forces. Very interesting. Hmm. So this trial is, is going to be happening. You mentioned this first phage trial. Are there other ones now that you think will follow quickly or what's going to happen over the next few years in the U.S., do you think? There are several phage therapy trials. Some have, have, have been you know run before, but not very well designed because it's difficult to design a trial when the drug is alive. And so we've learned some from some of those mistakes. There's trials that are be, being planned in Europe on, with different funding. Um, the NIH has actually funded two phage therapy trials. So the one that our, our center, IPATH, will be involved in is just the first one. So um, I do think that many clinical trials will be needed for different kinds of bacterial conditions, different kinds of pathogens. So we're starting with cystic fibrosis patients, but the other type of patients we hear about a lot are um, those with chronic urinary tract infections who've had a lot of exposure to antibiotics and and, um, are are at risk of systemic problems because of the toxicity and um, because of the the multi-drug resistant pathogens that they are exposed to. And um, we also see that anybody with um, like prosthetic joints, like hip or knee replacements is at risk of multi-drug resistant infections, because if you have hardware in your body, then um, bacteria form in these slimy layers called biofilms, which in our book, um, The Perfect Predator, I refer it to as the microbial version of the Borg. It's really hard for these antibiotics to get through that layer. So, um, but phage can get through them. So we're going to really need to look at phage therapy in a variety of different patient populations and in order to assess its efficacy. Hmm. Yes, this is super interesting. Stephanie, what's the best way for people to, um, you know, in addition to the book, how can they find out more about you 
about IPATH? Uh, what, what are some other resources for them? Well, first, if, if anybody listening has a superbug infection that is not responding to antibiotics, you or your physician can contact us at IPATH at UCSD.edu. Um, now, keep in mind that phage therapy is still experimental in the U.S., and so the FDA considers um, cases on a case-by-case basis. So we can work with physicians where, and patients wherever they are. We're a nonprofit. We're trying to expand the use of phage therapy um, by you know, teaching others how to do it. We have a number of collaborating laboratories that have agreed to do phage hunts when we send bacterial isolates to them. So there's a number of, of other groups like Baylor University, Yale, the Mayo Clinic um, that have popped up and that, that have been working in this area as well. Um, anybody who's interested in more about um, our fam- my family's story and resources around that can go to our book website, theperfectpredator.com. There's a, a, a number of different articles and videos there, as well as other podcasts. And um, anybody can email me as well. I'm, um, you know, kind of this is my mission now. My husband and I think that we were very privileged to have had this happen to us, but having access to, you know, physicians and, and researchers that were willing to help us, um, we feel like this is our reason to be on the planet. So my email address is strathd at ucsd.edu. Yeah, Stephanie, that's great. Thanks for sharing your story. And sheesh, that's, that's really crazy. But um, it's going to be the start of very good. That'll help a lot of people. So thanks yeah, for well, coming on the podcast. Has, but we hope it will, um, you know, help a lot more. Millions. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.